essence of praise has just been fulfilled here in this congregation. Praise is not the only way to commune with God, but it surely is one form of our conversation with him. There's another form, and you'll see it in the psalm before us. It's Psalm 17. It isn't exactly a praise psalm, the likes of which you just praised God. It's more of a cry for help, as you will see. So can you see how Psalm 17 begins with the words, a prayer of David? That has not been added by the translators or editors of your Bible. That is as inspired, inerrant, and authoritative as the body of the text. In fact, this is part of the body of Psalm 17. You can see that particular label with regard to some of the other Psalms, a a prayer of David. And that is alerting us to what's going to happen. David is making a critical plea to God. He's crying out on the basis of his hurt. He is desperate. He thinks he's going under. He doesn't think he'll survive the circumstances. We don't know specifically what they are, and that's because it isn't entirely that critical that we know. What we know is this one, the psalmist, is in terrible emotional shape. And at the peak of his emotion, he cries out to God. So take a look. Verse 1. Well, I'll tell you what. As you look at verse 1, can you count the number of times David, in essence, says the same thing. See how many, just verse one. How many times does he, using different vocabulary, essentially express the same thought? Three times. Look, here it is. Hear a just cause, O Lord. That's one. Give heed to my cry. That's two. Give ear to my prayer. That's three. Folks, he said the same thing. Well, why is he saying the same thing three times? Well, ask yourself that. When you hurt and are at the peak of emotion, you continue to converse about it for as long as the hurt remains. You go over and over because you're looking for relief. And I mentioned to you on a prior occasion, what you're reading here is not precise theology. Why in the world would David say, hear, O God, give heed, O God, listen? If you were there, would you be the kind of counselor who would say to him, David, get over it. Stop asking for God what he's already giving you, and that is his attention. Why are you uttering these words as if you have to plead with God to listen? He is a listening God. He's present. He knows He's concerned. Stop all this crybaby stuff. Would you be that kind of counselor? I mean, if you would, remind me not to seek your counsel. <laughs> he knows God hears. That's his rational being. That's correct theology. But he's not speaking the language of theology. He's speaking the language of a broken heart. He's speaking the language of pain. 
And God doesn't get mad at it. Look, listen. We got a cute little baby over here. Really, really cute. How old? Six months old. That's a little doll, and you better keep him quiet. No, no. Okay, okay. It's okay. It's okay. Not a problem. Not a problem. And uh, that baby is a treasure. Now, here's what that baby has already done, and I know the mom would verify this. When that baby gets hungry, and it could be at any moment, <laughs> that baby is not composed, discreet, diplomatic, gentle, even very kind. That David, uh, that David, that baby, <laughs> in a flurry of expression, screams out for nourishment. It's not neat, it's not smooth, uh, it's not, it's barely coherent. That baby feels such discomfort that the only thing on that baby's mind is relief. And when that baby expresses it, mom comes near and provides satisfaction of the baby's needs. And after two, three, four hours, I don't know what schedule the baby is on. Neither do you. Um, that baby is going to demonstrate that he has not learned his lesson. Because he's going to behave in the same irrational way. He's going to scream out again. He's not going to even take into account, what is mom doing? Maybe mom's busy. He's going to just scream, and I mean, it's a blood-curdling cry. You know how these little kids, the volume that could come out of these little bodies. And I'll bet you mom's not going to go over to the six-month-old and say, I need to reason with you. When you feel these hunger pangs, there is no need for you to make all that noise. Because the truth of the matter is, and apparently you're not quite getting it, is that I love you. I am planning on providing for you. And you do not have to scream out like that. That is so irrational of you. Now, the mom's not going to, you're not going to do that, are you? Yeah, anything. The mom's not going to speak to a six-month-old that way. Well, we are little children, and our father doesn't speak to us that way either. He doesn't say, stop crying out like this in verse 1. Let me reason with you. Don't you know I'm here for you? Don't you know you can trust me? Don't you know I'll provide for you? The answer is sort of, but when we're in the midst of pain, we have a way of not remembering. And we just peel back the layers of our sophistication and theological correctness and our composed adulthood, and we just cry out for Abba Father to relieve the pain. And he doesn't rebuke his little kids for doing that. So that's what David is doing here. It's the language of a hurt heart. He's not teaching a theology class in seminary. He's crying out to daddy for help. But I ask you this question. In our little praise time, I heard some of you mention that God is all-knowing, that he's omniscient, and therefore doesn't that invalidate the whole activity of prayer? Why even pray to God if you said he knows all things? Can you please tell me why we pray? 
What's the deal? He likes to hear from us. That's interesting. He li likes to hear from us. Yes. He likes to hear us acknowledge that we know he is where the relief comes from. That is good, Doug. Yes. See, this is good. We need to express our trouble and our sorrow. Isn't there a measure of release and relief when that happens? Doesn't it take so much energy to keep it all under wraps? Don't you have to get so good? You got the purpose. Oh, go ahead. Did you were you gonna say something? Are you just stretching? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Stretching is good. <laughs> really good. Yes, ma'am. He wants us to praise him and thank him. Very good. So the primary purpose of prayer is not to inform God about what's going on. How can you inform a God who is already completely informed? So that's not the purpose of prayer. And therefore, David, who knew this, is praying. And don't you know that prayer enhances the relationship? How else do you develop a relationship except through conversation? So that's what David is doing. Notice what he says at the end of verse 1. All this, which is not from deceitful lips. You know what he's saying? I'm not lying. I'm being sincere. I'm being authentic. I have no hidden agenda. You know what he's saying? Everything is cool between you and me at this particular time. And he's using this as sort of a basis of his entree into the discussion with God. He's saying, I'm all right with you. There's nothing obstructing the relationship. And he goes on, verse 2. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. In other words, you call the shots, God. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. Hey, you know what? Night is when one's true character comes out. You know, like when the lights go down, nobody could see. That's when the real you and me come out. See, that's when the secret life comes out. So David is essentially saying, even at that time, you have visited me at that time and have tested me and you find nothing. You don't find anything blameworthy. I've purposed that even my mouth will not transgress. Is he saying that he is sinlessly perfect? No. He is saying as far as he can be humanly aware, he does not know of any particular sin that is erecting a barrier at this time between him and God. Now, if you're in that situation where there's nothing in the way of you and God, how does that help you pray to him? Tell me. What does that do? For, I mean, how does that, what does it do? Who said, what? It gives you faith. That's good. Thank you. Anything else? Yes. That is good. It frees you up. Folks, have you ever not exactly been right with God? He's your father. He's your Messiah. You know that. But the communication is interrupted by something. Have you ever found yourself really hesitant about 
about starting a conversation with him? Have you ever felt a little uncomfortable? Have you ever felt that it's, uh, it's going to require a little labor for you to start the conversation? And what David is saying, no, no, no. I'm perfectly confident charging into the throne room of grace because there ain't nothing in the way. And that is the reward of obedience. Do you know you do not have to be obedient to get God's attention? You can cry out to him in your disobedience. You can say, oh, God, help me. I'm on the run. And I want to turn from my sin and turn back to you. Well, God will surely hear that prayer, too. But I'm just telling you, if things are good between you and God, then you don't have to work yourself up to have a conversation with him. You can just charge into his private throne room of grace and begin the conversation. So David is saying, I have this utmost confidence to come before you and utter this prayer. So that's what he's doing. So verse 4, as for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. So I ask you a question. Did David have more or less of the word of God than we have today? Far less. We have the new covenant as well. We have a total of 66 books comprising the word of God. What he had, even though far less, he said what he had of the word of God is what kept him from the paths of the violent. He made recourse to the guidelines in the word of God so as to suggest to him how to order his life. And so too it continues today. We consult the scriptures, the word of God, with regard to all issues, moral and all the rest. And that keeps us from, I think this is right. I think this is wrong. It doesn't matter. What does God think? What has he expressed in the Bible? Life becomes really, really simple because we do not have to vote on morality. All we have to do is read all about it in the Bible. So that's what David did. He said, verse 5, my steps have held fast to your paths my feet have not slipped i have called upon you according to what comes next in verse six why because god will answer i mean there's no wisdom in praying to something or someone who doesn't care who won't answer he's like praying to the wall right why do you want to do that you know they have the uh, we have the national day of prayer i like it in concept but I don't find much value in the content because you have every stripe of so-called religious, spiritual, clergy, whatever. Frankly, every odd uh, perspective on the face of the earth. Who are they praying to? They praying to the great spirit out there? They cr are, they, are they praying to energy? Who are they praying to? Why are you praying to Paul? Remember the Apostle Paul? He says, you know, you're, you're focused on an unknown God. Uh, David had confidence because he knew the living God. And he was addressing his plea for help to this known personality, this one true God of the Bible. And he had confidence, therefore, that he would receive an answer. He would be 
heard. So he says, incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Verse 7, wondrously show your loving kindness. Oh, steadfast love, it could be translated. What a word. It is the love of God towards the unlovely. <laughs> this kind of love, this kind of loving kindness, this kind of uh, steadfast love. In certain places in the Bible, it's called chesed love. One time I had you say that, but a lot of you complained that you're left with sore throats. <laughs> so we're not going to make you do that anymore. Listen, here's what's so unique about it. It's the uncaused love of God for you. You didn't cause it. It's uncaused. It simply emanates from the fact that he's the God of love. That is so very cool because if you didn't cause it, you cannot uncause it. The only way you can uncause the loving kindness of God is if you have more power than him and you don't. So there are no deeds you can do to get God to love you. And there are no misdeeds you can do to get him to cease loving you. This is his steadfast love. At your worst, he's at his best in loving you. That is very, very cool. You cannot find that anywhere except from the God of the Bible. David calls upon that in making his appeal and says, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. I love the word, O Savior. You would think that's a New Testament word, wouldn't you? Yeah, 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 but there it is in the Old Testament. What's happening here? Israel, you do not have to sit next to her. Um, so, look, here's the deal. Ah, Savior. Comes from Hebrew root, Ye Yeshua, to save. From it comes the name Jesus. So when you read in the Gospels, and you shall call his name Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. That was his primary reason in coming, to save. Therefore, he's called the Savior, which is Jesus in English and Yeshua in Hebrew. David makes his appeal to Savior. He says, oh, Savior, take care of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. So I want to tell you something. If you're one of those who's made your refuge the God of the Bible, you are a marked and targeted person. If you have said, I have ruled out all other options, there is not a multiplicity of gods, the only God who I've made my refuge is the, uh, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you have said that I make my refuge to him through the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, you're going to be opposed. Why? Because the evil one doesn't like it. He does not want glory, focus, and attention being given to the true God because Isaiah says he wants to be like the most high God. 
He is jealous of the attention you give the true God. And therefore, he darkened in his understanding will send your way those also darkened in their understanding who oppose you. And that's why we are not just in a post-Christian era. We are in a blatantly anti-Christian era today. But do not be surprised at it. There's a price to pay for making the Lord Jesus your refuge. You will be opposed. I'm telling you, it's open hunting season on Christians today, but you dare not say anything about a Muslim. Look out. The whole Muslim world will come get you. <laughs> but you can demean, criticize, do all manner of things to Christians. But the Bible says this, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be really happy. No, will be persecuted. And then Jesus said, what are you so surprised about? If they hated me, they'll hate you. Don't take it personally. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with whose you is. So David is praying, oh God, oh Savior, please protect us. Some of us make you our refuge, but there are others of us who are rising up against us. So verse 8, oh, I'm glad we got to verse 8. This is just major cool, cool to the max, okay? So don't leave yet. Look, if you've got to go after verse 8, okay, fine. But verse 8 is really good. Look, look, look. Two metaphors in it. Here's the first. Keep me as the apple of the eye. A metaphor. Here's the second. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Look at the first. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Now, ah, this is really cool. See the word apple? Comes from a Hebrew root, which literally means daughter of the eye. Daughter of the eye. Look, look, look. Have you ever looked into someone's eye and seen you? depending on the lighting and your proximity to the person, if they're really looking at you, you can see you reflected in their eye. That means that person is not being distracted by anything. That person is giving you their undivided attention. That means you, to that person, are their focal point. And that's what David is praying. Keep me as the daughter of your eye. You know what he's saying? When you look at me, oh God, let the reflection be like I'm just a little girl. Do you know the king of Israel is saying, think of me as a little girl? You know why? I'm the most vulnerable, says he. I'm the most needy. I'm the most weak. I'm the most susceptible. I need daddy to help me out because there are people who are out to get me. Please keep me as the daughter of your eye. I know people think of me as the king of Israel, mighty David, the warrior, and all the rest, but I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as an insecure guy who cannot be self-reliant and self-sufficient and whom no strength dwells. I need outside help. Be my strong dad. Keep me as the daughter of your eye, apple of your eye. Of course, it's a reference to the pupil of the eye. The pupil of the eye is a very delicate thing. Have you ever been poked in the eye? Would you like to try it? No. 
if you get poked in the eye accidentally or intentionally, it just, I mean, it could bring a big grown man down to his knees. You start tearing, you start crying, you start acting like a little baby. This is a very sensitive thing, and therefore the pupil of the eye has to be protected. And that's what David's saying. I'm sensitive, I'm weak, I'm vulnerable. Keep me as the pupil of your eye. I need your protection. Now, the word pupil comes from a Hebrew root word meaning little man. This is so cool. You know what he's saying? I don't mind being thought of as your little daughter, and I don't mean being thought of as your little man. I'm just little. And I know I'm little because the big challenges of life are prone to overwhelm me. So I make no bones about it. I'm just a little guy coming to a very, very big Abba Father. Take, take care of me. Do you realize this is flies in the face of the mantra of the day, which says believe in yourself? Which says uh, you can be anything you want to be? Which says um, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? Which says um, take care of yourself because nobody else will? No, the message of the Bible is the exact opposite. The message of the world says, be independently able. The message of the Bible says, be so dependent on God that you admit you're not able. Hey, do me a favor. Take a deep breath. Would you? On three. One, two, three. Yeah, very cool. You don't have the capacity to do that if God, the giver of life, didn't enable it. You can't even breathe without his help. How in the world are you going to be able to do anything else? You know, if you approach God as a self-sufficient, self-reliant, able one, filled with self, how could he pour himself into you? You're too filled up with self. You're not empty enough for him to fill it up. So Paul says, you know what? When I'm weak, I'm strong. You know what the world says? Be strong. You know what David said? I just want to be your little daughter, and I just want to be your little man. Hey, let me tell you something which I don't like, but it's true. One of the primary purposes of our journey here is for God to lovingly give us an enhanced sense of our need to be dependent on him. That's why stuff comes into our life that really hurts. Because none of us will empty ourselves voluntarily. So a loving God will allow circumstances to come our way that in essence have that effect. They empty us of self-confidence and abilities and a sense of control over life so that then we can cry out just as David did and say, oh, I'm just a little girl, I'm just a little guy. Father, would you help me? The primary purpose of our journey here, one of the purposes is that we would develop an enhanced sense of dependence on God. So you can see that the opposite of what the world is telling us to do <laughs> is what God is telling us to do. Can I tell you something? Don't be strong. Be weak so that you can be strong in the strength of your father. There's a big, big difference there. So then he says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. The second metaphor, it's a bird thing. Mama birds protect their little baby birds by spreading out their wings. And David is saying that. King David. 
man, he's saying, I just want you to spread your wings just like a, a mama bird who cares for her little chicks. And David's up against some real vicious people, so that's why he calls for God's help. And he describes the vicious people in verse 9. From the wicked, do all this, God. Protect me from the wicked who despoil me. My deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart. Oh, you want to hear what that literally is translated like in Hebrew? See where it says they have closed their unfeeling heart? Listen. They are enclosed in their own fat. Don't you just love them Jews? <laughs> I mean, we got a way to turn a phrase. They are enclosed in their own fat. What does it mean? They are so caught up, these people who oppose David, um, they are so caught up in their own self-indulgence they have covered with layers and layers of impregnable fat their heart so their heart cannot be sensitive to the needs of those around them. They have so succeeded in centering their life on self-indulgence that they don't have the capacity to be outside of self and help somebody else. They have closed their unfeeling heart. It doesn't have the capacity to feel anymore because it's buried under too many layers of fat self-indulgence. Not literally fat, you know what I mean. Feeding the self, feeding the desires, denying oneself no thing, accumulating more and more, more and more and more. It's like an addiction. If you've ever struggled with an addiction, you know you start out with a little drug about like that. And it seems to do the trick. And then after a while, you got to increase it a little bit just to get the same effect. Then you got to increase it even more. And that's what this kind of thing is like. You can never be sated. You can never be satisfied by self-indulgence because you build up a threshold for it and you have to keep increasing it. And you get to the point where you can't even extend yourself with empathy to another. You close your heart to them. That's what David said. He said, they've surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He's like a lion, eager to tear. And as a young lion lurking in hiding places. So he cries out, arise, O Lord. Confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand. Your sword, your hand. You know what David's doing? He's putting all of his eggs in one basket. He's not saying, I got a backup plan. He's not saying, God will give you a shot to help me out. If you don't come through, I got other gods on the shelf. I'll pull them off. He's not saying, I got multiple resources. He's saying, I got a singular resource. He's saying, I don't know where else to go. Who else am I going to look to? Therefore, David's appeal was words of personal possession your sword your hand he's putting all the eggs of his desperation into one basket oh lord says he do this from men of the world look whose portion is in this life everyone wants a piece of the pie these are people described as those who are digging into the pie the sweet things of this life. Their portion, their investment is in getting from this life 
a portion of its riches so as to satisfy them. And do you know who has supplied them with all that? Look at this. And whose belly you, a reference to God, fill with your treasure. So like these are the bad guys, but God's filling them up with his treasure. Not only that, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. Hang on just a second. These are the bad guys, and yet it looks like God is the source of all this stuff, treasures, riches, and wealth. He's filling them up with, and they not only have financial prosperity, but they also have like lots of family. They had kids to whom they could leave their abundance and their will. Wait just a second. What's going on here? I don't get it. This looks like a reward for being a bad guy. What's happening? No, it's not a reward. Yeah, it's just reward. Tell you what I mean. If you, in so many words, say to God, thank you, but no thank you, I just want to get all the gusto here. I just want to live for here. I just want my portion to be here. Yeah, I'm not into the future. I don't know about this future hope. Eternity. Come on, Baba. Don't talk to me about eternity. I'm not really interested in a relationship with you. I mean, thanks for life and all that. Yeah, I believe in God. But I don't want to really connect. Yeah, it's cool. I just believe generically in God. You know what I mean? What I really want is to succeed in this life. I want to accumulate as much wealth as I could and just have a big old estate, leave it so that, uh, you know, my legacies continue through the next generations. You know what God will say? He won't say no way. He'll say, okay. If that's what you demand, if that's the desire of your heart, I'll give it to you. See if it satisfies. If you want to settle for that which is perishable as opposed to that which is imperishable, then okay. Hey, don't think that's so weird. If you're a parent or a grandparent and, uh, you know, one of your kids comes up to you and says something like, hey, hey, hey. I don't want to go to whatever school anymore. I'm just running off with my girlfriend. You know, we're living in some commune in Oregon. Uh, you're probably going to have to say, okay, have at it. That's what God does. He doesn't impose himself upon us. He only invites us to do the right thing. And so if someone says, no, 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 I've made my choice. I want my portion in this life. God says, you got it, Charlie. It's all yours. Therefore, folks, some of the saddest, emptiest people in our life experience are those who got a bunch of stuff. Now, there's no shame in having a bunch of stuff. But if you've chosen a bunch of stuff instead of a relationship with Almighty God, you got nothing. You might have a big mansion and you might have a healthy stock port. No, nobody has a healthy stock. <laughs> you talk about perishable things, you can kiss that goodbye. That ain't happening. You know what I mean? You just, you're an empty shell. You just got stuff. That's your portion. And God has filled your belly with all those worldly treasures because you have stated that's what I hunger for and God has done it and that's okay. That's all you get. But, folks, what would you rather have? Would you rather have the best of what this world has to offer or the Lord Jesus Christ forever? Make your choice. David did. 
That's why he says in verse 15, you'll be glad to know our last verse. As for me. Those three words are huge. When he says, as for me, he's distinguishing himself from the them of verse 14. He's saying, this is what the them did. They chose to invest in this life and this life only, but I am not like them. As for me, folks, do you know that's what we're supposed to be? As for me, people. We're not supposed to go with the flow. We're not supposed to fit in with the majority. We're not supposed to do what everyone else is doing. We're supposed to be as for me people. We're not to be, to be so invested in this life that we exchange our souls for it. We're asked to be as, we are to be as for me people. And David said, as for me, look, I don't want all that stuff he's saying. He said, I shall behold your face. That means intimacy. I just won't behold it from a distance. I shall behold it in righteousness. I will be in right standing with you when I see you, when you see me. Everything will be cool. I'll be rightly related to you. I'll behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied. Everyone needs to be satisfied. The verse 14 people are looking for satisfaction with perishable things here. He says, no, no, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. When I awake. Now, what's that mean? He has a good night's sleep. He gets up early in the morning and this takes place. No, it's a metaphor for what? After I die, I'll live again. After I die, you will resuscitate me. Here is an old covenant character who had a notion of eternal life and was living for it. Could I tell you something? Most people today don't. Most of my people today don't. They don't even think about eternal life. They don't. They've lost the whole concept of eternity with which the scriptures speak, our own Jewish scriptures. He says, no, no, no. When I awake, I will be resurrected and satisfied with your likeness. So, I want to ask you a question which you don't answer now, but I want you to answer it privately to yourself. What really is so cool about being with Jesus forever, beholding his likeness and seeing his face? Look, 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 look. Heaven, streets of gold. Wow. Very cool. Not even silver. Silver, too cheap. Streets of gold and gates consisting of pearl. Holy moly, really cool. But this guy who believed in eternity was not looking for that. He was saying that the pearl of greatest price was his intimacy with the Messiah. And my question is why? Why is that intimacy, that connection, that face-to-face -face relationship, why is that the, uh, a prize that exceeds all other prizes. Why is this better than winning the lottery? Why is this better than getting married? Why is this better than getting unmarried? Why is this better than having kids? Why is this better than saying goodbye to the kids? Why is this better than getting the job you want? Why is this better than getting the degree you want? Why is this better than being healthy and free of disease? 
Why is this better than being wealthy? None of those things are wrong. I just want to know why is the psalmist looking forward to this more than anything? And I'd like you to come up with the answer and talk it over with God. I did this on the way here today. I was trying to figure it out. Why is that so cool? Why is it? There's a lot of cool stuff. Why does this exceed all others in value to be in right standing with Almighty God to behold him face to face forever? I came up with an answer. It's none of your business. <laughs> you come up with an answer. That's nobody's business either. What if you can't come up with an answer? Talk to me. Let's talk. Why is this Greek to you? Why is this foreign to you? Why is this conceptually you can't relate to it? Why do you not find this experience of eternity with Almighty God in his very presence? Why do you not find this to be what you want to be your portion in life? Why do you not place that much value on it? It's okay. Don't be ashamed. We can talk. Let's talk. I'd like you to talk to me. Come talk to me. But if you got this settled and you say, oh, no, the best of what the world has to offer pales in comparison to the experience I'm going to have in the very presence of Almighty God. If you got that figured out, then, man, have a good day. Think about it. Reflect on it. Chew on it. Meditate on it. Talk to God about it. Remind yourself why this is so cool. And remember, the goal, if this is you, the goal is to know Christ, for to know him is eternal life. No other goal. Now, I'm going to say something very obnoxious. And you will have a hard time distinguishing it from the other obnoxious. And I'm going to say something that's going to step on toes. Uh, do you realize when we take prayer requests... They're almost exclusively about people feeling better medically. That tells me we've missed the pearl of a great price. Why don't we pray for that relative who's struggling with a disease that somehow in the course of the disease, they would be so emptied of self, they, like David, would cry out to Almighty God for help come to know him and become spiritually healed so that he can be their portion forever. What if they just get healed of the cancer but remain separated from Almighty God? Then that healing of cancer will be their portion in life. So what? So what? I, want to, I, to, I would rather be physically afflicted and spiritually whole than spiritually sick and physically whole. Please do not misunderstand. We should intercede and pray for others. My only question is, why is that the only thing we pray? Tell me. Why don't I hear people cry out, Oh, God, I want you to be the most important thing for me. Oh, God, I want my ailing husband or wife or friend to discover you to be the one who loves them most. Oh, God, I want this word of your availability to go throughout the world. Oh, God, I want you to help me to be holy as thou art holy. Oh, God, I want you to use my present physical affliction somehow. I don't know how you can do it for good to enhance my 
dependence on you. Oh, God, I think you can bless me even in my illness. If you want to bless me out of it, very cool. But maybe you have something for me in it to enhance my dependence on you. Folks, what has happened to us? You know what? We've made this life our portion. It's an organ recital when we pray. Make my, the organ of my liver work. Make the organ of my heart work. Make the... Do you know people who die in Christ live forever? Do you know people who live apart from Christ die forever? So why are we just praying that they be healthy? I don't get it. Are you so afraid of passing on and going to be with the Lord? <gasps> you see, David said that, 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 that will satisfy me. That's what I'm looking for. Now, we can't rush it, but why are you fighting it? Yes, ma'am. Wow, what a cool story. What a good, isn't that good? I didn't say illness is good, but can't God use all things for the good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose? So don't see these things as enemies. I mean, see the enemy as the enemy. See these things as opportunities to empty ourselves. Paul said, when I'm weak, I'm strong. We always have to be weak. The most dangerous Time in life is when we're doing okay alone, apart from God. That's a very precarious position to be. Look, please, don't let me get you so nervous about what you're praying. I don't mean that. I didn't say delete that stuff. Why don't we add to it? You just see how we opened the class? We just said to God what we think of him. That's an aspect of prayer. How come we don't do that? Let me tell you what I do, and you do the same thing. I start asking stuff of God. But the pattern of prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's praise to God. You know what happens a lot of times when you praise God? You forget about your problems. You're reminded how big God is, and your problem doesn't loom quite as large. We're missing out on it. He, it's like Santa Claus. Oh, I want for... And you, he's like the divine Santa Claus. He wants intimacy with us. You've said it. He wants communion. He wants relationship. He likes to hear from us. How about these two aspects of prayer? Praise and thanksgiving. We can, make, we can pray. Don't get me wrong. David is doing it. Please don't misunderstand. I'm just saying you don't have to delete. How about adding? How about thanking him? You know, I thought about it today. I'm not always thankful. Don't get me wrong. I'm telling you what I'm working on, too. Listen, I got out of bed today. Oh, man, I got a bed. I put on some clothes. Holy moly, I got some clothes. 
Yeah, they don't, they don't fit so good, but they're clothes. Hey, before I came, I had some breakfast. Cornflakes, raisins. I like raisins. Raisins are our friends. I had it. Hey, after that, I got in the car to get... Car? Yeah, I got a car to get gas. I got the money to put gas in the thing. I'm going to church. Wow, there's people there, wonderful people. They helped me grow. I helped them grow. Really cool. After this, I'm going to go home. I've been nice to my wife. I'm going to get lunch. <laughs> I mean, you got, you got, I didn't say don't pray about what hurts. I'm just saying don't let that be all. When a visitor comes here, and here's the people of God only petitioning him for things, how is he praised in the sanctuary? What a wonderful job. Maybe you couldn't hear, but I could hear. Oh, God, you are merciful. Oh, God, you're a great provider. Oh, God, you're compassionate. Oh, God, you guide me through life. Oh, God, you're my savior. <sighs> we fill the atmosphere, and the Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. You get it? You want to build the temple, then build it with praise. So what we'll do is try to help each other out. We won't tell people, don't pray that. We'll just say, add to it. What do you like about God? What do you want to thank him for? Look at us. I'm not in the Gaza Strip. I don't live in Sudan. I'm not impoverished in Siberia. Look at us. Padded chairs. Praise and thanksgiving. Yeah? All right. So don't be mad. I'm working on it myself. Could I tell you one more thing, then we're out of here. The reason why I'm dragging it out is the pastor's just getting warmed up, I promise you. <laughs> we'll still get out early. One other thing. Have you ever found yourself with great energy asking God for something on your own behalf or on behalf of a loved one, and then you get it, but you don't say thank you? It happens to me. I pray for the thing. The thing comes to pass. Then later on, I'll say, oh, my goodness, holy moly. I forgot to say thank you. Wouldn't it be good if we thank God with as much energy as we are petitioning God for stuff? So I'm just saying, you know, our conversation, we learn from the Psalms, that's all. Just learn to pray <sighs> better. <laughs> Just learn to pray better. Okay, we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for being patient, for listening to us, for bringing us together, for imparting your mind to us, for loving us, for wanting us. I don't get it. We don't get it, but you do. Thank you for coming to us and for us and for making a way whereby we could get to you. Thank you not only for forgiving us, but for taking us home. Thank you for being um, kind of one-stop shopping center as far as satisfaction of our needs. We don't have to look hither and yon. We just look to you. Thank you for your perfections in every way. In this day when we can't count on too many in positions of authority, we can count on you. You never let us down. You never lie. You never break your word. You're untempted by unholiness. You're incorruptible. You're the best. You're the biggest. You're our dad. 
Thanks for being with us today and always. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, see you, folks. Hey, don't forget social committee, social committee meeting. Come on up here.
But it's okay. But when we went in September, people said, hey, isn't it good we went? I said, no, hang on. If we were there right now, we wouldn't even realize it. You're not, you're not going to Ashkelon. You're not in Gaza. Relax. You see the reservists. You see more activity. But you're in Jerusalem. You're in Tel Aviv. Still, you know, this was a good reach. Who are you going for? I got I have a mantra for you. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. If you think about number one too much, you're gonna stick at number two. <laughs> <laughs> 